Hello and welcome to the Brian Hornback Experience. This is episode 70 and we've got another candidate. Actually, this is an office holder who will be on the ballot May the 3rd in the Republican primary. He's no stranger to polit- he's no stranger to the ballot box. He did it about a year ago. Um, and so he's uh, coming back now for the full term. This is Eric Lutton, our Knox County Public Defender. How you doing, Mr. Public Defender? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So you've you've not done you've not done well. First of all, this is only the 70th episode. So granted, you haven't done this one. So first of all, we'll, we'll get some of the preliminaries out. Uh, you live out in the Halls community. Your your yes, your your beautiful wonderful wife of 15 years is a, a school teacher for Knox County, and y'all have two daughters, correct? Well, she's actually yeah we we've got two daughters. She's actually the head principal out at Holston Middle School. Wow. And uh, we're actually, we're coming up on, we got married in 2004 in May, so we're, we're coming up on 18 years here. Oh, wow. So I'm looking at an old bio. My bad. Yeah, um, I think that bio was when I was running for office a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, good. Back in 2020. So have you still only got one dog or do you have multiple dogs? We got one dog, one there dog, you go. Ghost. There yep, you he's, go. Uh, he's about three years old now. Well, and, and mine, mine lays underneath my desk, so uh, you may hear him start shaking his head or or uh whimpering for a treat but right now he's right now he's asleep so uh so you uh you graduated from ball state summa cum laude which to me that means you're smart uh from from criminal justice and philosophy then you came to the university of tennessee college of law to get your uh uh juris doctorate your jd uh where you graduated cum laude in 2007 so what I really want to talk about is that from 2007 to 2013, that time between uh, graduating law school and actually going to work at the community law office, which is our public defender office, you actually were in private practice. And, and what I'm really interested in about that private practice is it says that you focus on state and federal indigent criminal defense in both state, federal court across East Tennessee. So what I'm curious about is how does a guy that just started in uh, practicing law, indigent criminal defense basically means that you're relying on whatever the state will pay. How do you live on that? That's what I want to know. Well, it's, it's really hard to live on that, the, um, <laughs> at least on the state level. Right. Uh, it, it sounds like, you know, I can see how it sounds like a lot, but back, back then the state paid $40 an hour uh, for indigent work, and that may sound like a pretty good living, um, but it's kind of, a, it's, it's a difficult living when you've got you know, if you've got office overhead expenses, if you've got any, uh, if you have any support staff that you want to bring on. So it's, it's almost yeah. impossible to have support staff. It's almost impossible to have sort of office space and, and make a living on that $40 an hour. Plus, you know, if you're coming out of law school, uh, unless you came from a wealthy background, which I did not, you've probably got six figures in student loans where mm. they're wanting you to pay, you know, over $1,000 a month towards the student loan payment. So it's, it is a struggle. Um, and so you try and mix it up with, you, you know, you get your appointed work and if you're able to pick up retained cases here and there, you, you do that to supplement. Um, another thing I did probably about three or four years into my practice, I transitioned to doing a lot of federal work. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the federal work pays these days, but, but back when I was doing it, it was paying 125 an hour. And so that was a, that's a little you know, bit more better. Than three, yeah, more than three times as much as what they paid, uh, on, on state level cases. And, and in fairness, those cases are oftentimes a lot more complex. Um, but uh, I transitioned to doing a lot of federal work when I was in private practice prior to joining the public defender's office. And so, 
uh, I, you know, those first couple years were really lean. Um, but by the time I shut down the practice, uh, before I joined the public defender's office in 2013, I was, ma- I was making a pretty good living. I had gotten to where I built my practice where I was pulling in o- over six figures a year. So it, it, it took me some years to get there, but, uh, but ultimately it was a successful business before I shut it down. Good. So in 2013, you joined the Knox County public defenders community law office as an assistant public defender. Then in about two years later, you, you became a team lead. So, uh, and, and you know what's interesting is that obviously having been in politics as long as I have, I started when I was 16 years old back in the back in the 80s. I remember when Mark Stevens ran for this position in 1990. We didn't have a public defender before 1990. We just, I guess, we we relied on the the judges. I'm assuming because I obviously I'm not a lawyer and I haven't stayed at a Holiday Inn anytime recently, but. Um, you know, I'm assuming from what I've been told that basically prior to 1990, it, it was just kind of the all the all the attorneys that needed work kind of hung out, and the uh, judges just kind of appointed the indigent work uh, to anybody and everybody that that uh, needed work. Uh, but you know, in 1990, um, Knox County, for whatever reason, I guess it's when we starting to go to home rule charter, decided to create the public defender. Mark Stevens ran for that position. He held it up until until you were appointed by Governor Lee uh, when when Mark retired. And so he's really created. I, I looked at your website uh, just prior to this. You've got about 29 other lawyers plus yourself, 28 other lawyers plus yourself on the website. So just kind of talk about the, the obviously you've been there since 2013. Kind of talk about the office and kind of talk about the the makeup and kind of what what Joe Citizen, who's going to be voting on May the 3rd and August the 4th, what they may or may not know about the public defender's office, and I'll shut up and let you talk. Sure. It's kind of interesting, if I, if I may divert very slightly from your question. Back oh, in sure. those days, pre, pre-1990, it was sort of interesting because it wasn't just that the judges were appointing other attorneys who sort of had a, a focus on indigent defense or even criminal defense or criminal law. They used to just have to appoint any lawyer in town. And so you might mm. have somebody that's never stepped foot in a courtroom that drafts contracts for a living. And suddenly they're trying to represent somebody on a first degree murder case, wow. horribly inefficient. And the, the, the result was you had a lot of people that were coming into court that, you know, were leaving their office where they're making 300 bucks an hour or 400 bucks an hour to go represent somebody they've been told to represent. The result was really poor quality representation in a lot of instances because people weren't actually focused or had any sort of dedication or knowledge base. Um, but also a lot of inefficiency because if you were an attorney and you wanted to be effective, as I think most people do want to be good at their jobs, um, you know, you've been drafting contracts for the last 20 years of your life and now you're having to get up to speed on criminal law. Mm. There's a heavy learning curve. And so I, I think that in a lot of ways we're able to do it more effectively and more efficiently by sort of, uh, a specialization is not the right word, but a focus where that's all, all the assistant public defenders do is criminal, criminal law. And right. So we, we know it. Um, in, in terms of the office, I, I think that we're, we're really fortunate. Um, and, and uh, that we have got what I think is a, a really phenomenal public defender office in Knox County, Tennessee. And I have to give a lot of credit to Mark Stevens for that. He, he really did build something special. You know, Mark, for those of you who know, Mark, he was, a, he was absolutely a visionary and he was really effective at taking a vision and, and putting, you know, implementing it. Um, and so uh, we're, we're one of the only, we were, well, we were one of the first, if not the first public defender offices in the South that had social workers. 
Mm. And the reason why we have social workers is because of this idea that, that we like to call uh, client-centered holistic defense. And to sort of explain what the holistic part means, it means that you know we want our clients to succeed. We want them to do better. We, we don't want to just defend the criminal charge. If I've got a client that's charged with shoplifting from Walmart, for example, I can easily defend that Walmart charge. I mean, I can pull the, the surveillance videos from inside. I can see if, if the state has the goods to make their case. But if, in fact, that client was stealing from Walmart, there's probably something going on in their lives that led them to that decision. Right. It could be mental health issues. It could be uh, substance abuse issues. It could be any number of things. And if all I do is look at those videos from Walmart and don't do anything to try and figure out what's going on in the client's life, I might get a good resolution for that client, but we're going to see him again because we've done nothing. Uh, their introduction to the court system has done nothing to put them in a better place in their life. And so one of the things that we have with the social workers um, and with a, the, a real focus on that for the, the 28 other lawyers in the office is to try and work with the whole client and figure out not, not just did, did they commit a crime and, and, and can the state prove it, but are there resources available in the community? Are there things that we can do to try and make sure that that person doesn't reoffend again, that that person is able to get clean of, of drugs or alcohol, that that person is able to access the mental health treatment that they need. Um, so Brian, sometimes it's as simple as a driver's license or an ID. Right. You know, you've got somebody that's that's really trying their best, uh, but they can't get a job because they don't have an ID. And it's amazing to me that sometimes if you can do something as simple as getting someone pointed to the resources so they can get an ID that allows them to get a job, which allows them to build towards housing, that you can you can meaningfully impact their life over something that was just helping them with that with that form and helping them sort of navigate the bureaucracy of, of what they need to do to get an ID or driver's license. And so we try and spend a little bit of extra time with people working with them to put them in a better position in their life. So hopefully we don't see them come back through the system. How many of those, how many of those support staff, social workers, because granted, I mean, you might have 29 lawyers, um, but I mean, obviously you got to have clerical, you got to have some, I'm assuming you got some staff researchers, you got social workers, so what's what's the total what's the what's the total body count inside the community law office? It, it, it varies somewhat depending on you know sometimes when law school is in session or out of session because oh, that yeah. can vary about the number of law clerks we have. But we generally hover around sixty five. That's cool. Um, and we, we we hover around right now we have seven full time social workers on staff. Wow. But even with seven full time social workers, that means that we can only give social workers to roughly ten percent of our clients. Right. Um, I'd love to be able to expand that. We've been able to show that when we can have social worker intervention, that people are more likely to be successful. But it's just a, it's a resource problem. You know, you, we, we we try and make the best with what we have and, and try and uh, make the most positive impact for our community and our clients that we can. Um, but just like every other. Uh, not only government agency, but but everybody in the private sector as well. There's there's resource problems for all of us, and we've got to navigate uh, the waters with the best that we can with what we have available. And you get money from the state and local, is that correct? That is accurate, yes, sir. Okay, so and basically, I mean, I I, I like my public defender, and I, I really like my district attorney general. But basically, what we're doing is obviously. Um, the district attorney general is prosecuting the case and y'all are having to defend the case for those that, that can't afford, uh, can't afford representation. So you're not, you don't have every criminal case that the district attorney has, but you do have a good percentage of those cases. And I know that Mark Stevens at one time talked about the fact that, you know, the, 
the 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 weight the weight of the budget should be um, should be equal. I know that it's not equal, but is it is it somewhat? Is it getting better, or is it about the same as as when uh, Mark was having those budget discussions with the state and the locals back then? I mean, obviously you could always use more money, I'm sure, but I mean, where where is where are we in the budget flow there? Sure. So the way that it works is we get we get what's called state positions. So okay. I have a set number of attorney positions that are uh, funded by the state. And it doesn't it's not a dollar amount in the sense that if I put a brand new fresh out of law school lawyer in that who's making entry level salary, that's a position. Okay. Or if I put somebody who's been practicing for 25 years and is maxed out on the salary scale, mm. that's a position. So it's not it's not a set dollar amount from the state. It's a set number of positions for attorneys, investigators okay. and legal secretaries. Um, on the county side, where we get the rev, our, our, our funds there, uh, we do not I do not submit a budget proposal. Uh, like we're in budget season right now. in right, County. Right. I'm not going to be submitting a budget proposal to uh, Mayor Jacobs um, because there's a state law that basically lays out that local entities, local governments. Uh, are not required to fund DA's offices uh, in excess of the positions that they get from the state. But the reality is the positions that, that both myself and the DA would get from the state would not be enough for the courts to function in Knox County. Exactly. For the bigger counties, you almost have to have some of that local county uh, uh, su subsidy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to run the courts. Um, but, but the way that it works out is to try and make sure, because as I'm sure you and your listeners can imagine, it's really popular to fund a DA's office. Right. You know, people love the idea of being tough on crime, but if you don't have public defenders in the courtroom as well, the court, the court system grounds, grinds to a halt. And so they passed a law a few decades ago that basically laid out that if local counties opt to fund the DA's office, that they have to give 75% of that dollar amount to the PD's office to keep things equitable, to make sure that all of the resources don't just funnel into a DA's office but that we also have resources funneled into a public defender's office. Otherwise, you would end up in a situation where we wouldn't be able to to really contest anything. And then right. the, the, the state could just railroad, you know, roll over its citizens without uh, without anyone to sort of operate as that check and balance to make sure that, uh, you know, there are malicious prosecutions or that innocent people aren't being convicted. Right. So are, is, so is, has that been working fairly well now that you're getting 75 percent of what the D.A. gets? I mean, you know, I, I imagine the DA's office would probably say that we should get a lot less. Right. I would say that I think that our jobs are very different than theirs. and You can't compare it. That, that it, it is true. If, if a person gets arrested and they have they have money, they're not poor. Right. They're going to go out and hire somebody. And so the DA's office is still going to have to prosecute that case, and we're not going to have to defend it. Um, and so from that perspective, the DA's office will make the pitch at times that, well, we're, we are prosecuting 100% of the cases. And they're not defending 100% of the cases, so therefore they should not get 100% of our funding. Mm. But I guess I would point out that we made about 5,000 visits to the jail last year, mm. and that's a 45-minute round trip from the office. Um, I would wager that maybe a DA or two made a trip out to the jail last year. Um, when we've got uh, a situation where we need to go out and talk to witnesses, I can't just pick up the phone and call KPD or Knox County Sheriff's Department or UT Police Department or the Tennessee Highway Patrol and say, I need an officer to go out to this location and question this witness. Mm. I got to go do it. Or, yeah. or one of my assistant public defenders has to do it. And so the, the jobs that we do are very different because we don't have 
all of those resources. I mean, the, the DA's office is a very large machine that has a lot of partners with a lot of police agencies um, where we're having to do most of that work just ourselves. We've got four investigators, um, but that's four investigators to cover roughly 10,000 cases a year, um, as opposed to hundreds and hundreds of police officers that we can sort of call on to go assist us in investigations. And so our jobs are very different. And so I think that if you just look at it on a case numbers, uh, perspective, you're not really comparing apples to apples at all. Do the agencies that does the, uh, Knoxville police department, the Knox County Sheriff's department, did they work? Are they cooperative when they have to work with, when, when they need to work with, uh, the public defender's office? I, I guess it would, I guess it would depend on, on, on what you mean if they're cooperative when they need to work with us. I mean, um, I, I guess it, I, I, I'm not a hundred percent certain what you're so, so does it, so does so obviously when, when, when you're, when you're having to defend uh, someone, obviously the police department, sheriff's department, they've arrested somebody for a crime. So they're probably just from my layman's perspective, they're probably, they've helped build the case for the district attorney general. So um, if, if you're during that investigation that you're, that your uh, assistant de uh, public defenders are, working with those police officers are those police officers cooperative or do you have to or are they always not wanting to tell you everything i mean do you have to do you have to force the answer out of them or that because obviously from my perspective i guess from from watching the various court tv shows uh you know i mean the police obviously have helped build the case so are they are they cooperative or they is it is it an adversarial relationship? It's it's really a case by case basis, I okay. would say. I mean, there there are, there are so there I, I refer to it as the back hall. Like you've got the, right, the, right. the city county building where you've got like yep. the main area where anybody can walk into. Behind the courtrooms, back in the hallway where the judges have their chambers, right. there's a lot of negotiations and discussions that happen in that back hall. Um, and so when I refer to the back hall area, I'm talking about the area that's not readily visible, readily right. visible to between, any of the courthouse. Between the courtroom and the judge's chambers. Yes. Right. There's a lot of conversations that happen back there. Okay. And, and it's really, it's really, it's really dependent upon the individual officers and also the DAs that have the case. You know, there, there are some DAs that will tell the officer, this is the defense attorney, you know, answer any questions they have. And there are others that really want to play it close to the vest and don't want the police talking to you at all. Okay. Um, I think that it's most productive when we can have a conversation. I mean, I look at it like this. I mean, if I, for example, let's say that I think that there's a, a that the there's a search and seizure issue, or that there's a bad stop, or that they've got, you know, potentially the wrong person. And, and, and let's be honest about a lot of things. The, the police are almost are, are rarely on scene when the crime occurs. They're right oftentimes right. coming to the scene later. And a lot of times, especially in situations that might involve family disputes or things like that, the police are having to get there and they're having to do the best job that they can in that moment on the scene with imperfect facts and in-person information. And they're trying to flush out what happened. And so sometimes, you know, it can be really productive if you can have that conversation and find out, you know, what and you know what happened, who, you know, who said what. And, and you know, there are times that that. Uh, that they don't necessarily have all the information. And so sometimes, sometimes you have officers that are, that are more than happy to sort of listen to your pitch or listen to what information you have found out. I mean, you know, I mean, 
gosh, you know, we've had, I can't tell you the number of times we've had cases where, you know, the police arrive at a location and the witnesses tell them that something happened and they make an arrest based upon all the information they had. And then, you know, we've either investigated or we've gotten, you know, ring doorbell footage or we've gotten, you know, located other witnesses that tell a completely different story mm. that the officer just simply didn't have available when they made the initial determination. And so I think communication is important. And, and you know, what I've told several officers is, look, if there are a lot of these questions about whether or not something did or didn't happen or whether or not the state can make their case that we can sort of figure out in a discussion. Right. Without me having to pull you off your beat, subpoena you to come into court, um, and only ask you questions on the witness stand. Mm. There's a time and a place to ask the questions on the witness stand, but but let's be honest, it's a very small percentage of cases that are actually resolving via trial. Most of the cases, um, for right or wrong, I would suggest probably more wrong than right, but most cases resolve via plea agreement. Well, and I, I would imagine that a more seasoned police officer and a more seasoned district attorney uh, is going to know what they can and can't uh, do by the law. I mean, you know, some of that, some of that I'm, I'm assuming is learned by, by just experience, I would assume. I, I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, and especially as, as you work in the court system longer, you, you sort of will develop, maybe relationships isn't the right word necessarily, but but you develop a professional working relationship with somebody where they know that you're not going to twist their words or they know that you're not going to lie right. about what they said or didn't say. Um, and you can build, uh, you know, you can build towards productivity as you sort of work in the system longer with the players. Yeah. It's kind of like when I have to ask people, when I ask people to come on the Brian Hornback experience and I have to always say, there are no gotcha questions. Uh, you know, I think, <laughs> think, think everybody, I think everybody assumes after 17 years of being a blogger, there's always going to be a gotcha question. And really it's just, you know, it's just trying to get the information out. So uh, most of your cases, uh, what, I mean, I'm just asking for a hypothetical kind of percentage. Most of your cases, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we look at cases like, you know, the Christian Newsom case, it's done, it's over with. I mean, there, everything's been, sure. Everything's been done, but, uh, I don't. I don't think the public defender really had a lot of the, a lot of those. I mean, you. I mean, obviously, you've got some big cases, but uh, between what you would consider a small um, shoplifting charge versus a large first degree murder, where, where what, what's the percentage? And I'm again, you. Just, I'm just asking, just to. Uh, I mean, do you have do you have a lot of DUIs? Do you have a lot of uh, a lot of we, we, get, I mean, we get a decent amount of DUIs. Um, I would say that DUI is is one of those things that I, I sort of identify it as almost an everybody crime, right? In the sense that, um, you know, there there are crimes that we are more likely to get appointed to because it is more likely that a poor person, a person without means, is the one who is going to be accused or potentially is is more likely to have committed the crime. Um, DUI is something that. You know, executives go out for their happy hour and pick up a DUI on the way home. I mean, it's it, it's it's a type of thing that when you that the private bar, I would say, typically has a higher percentage of DUI cases where people have hired counsel than probably just about any other type of case in the courthouse. Well, um, and if you and if you got a first time DUI, you can you can pretty much, I mean, I think everybody kind of knows you you can kind of plead that out and get your time served, and you know your your you know what 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 I mean they it's the, the, the typical offer on a DUI first offense in Knox County um, is uh, 
basically plead guilty as charged to a DUI with a minimum punishment. Yeah. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And I, I think that, it, that some of the reasons I think are, are potentially troubling. One of which we, we've, we have a system where uh, DA's offices are, are able to have what's called grant attorneys. Mm. Um, and that's where you have individuals who their, their, their paycheck is basically paid. It's grant funded by a DUI grant. Mm. Um, I, I personally have a problem. I think anytime you start tying, uh, a person's paycheck to conviction rates. Mm. I think that it, it, it has the potential to lead to um, individuals making decisions not based upon what is right or what is wrong, wow. uh, but based upon that they have to hit certain data or certain numbers in order to keep their grant. Um, is that grant coming? I, from, is that grant coming from the state? I, I'm not. You know, I'm not exactly sure where their where their grant funding comes from. Okay. Um, you know, it can be that there are, I believe, state and federal grants available, and I, I honestly haven't tracked. Right, right. But, but, it, but, but it is, it is a thing that exists, hmm. and so, um, but, but yeah, I mean, so it's, right. but, but yeah, DUI is kind of to sort of bring bring it back around. DUI is kind of an every person crime, and so I think that we have a smaller percentage of DUIs um, than maybe probably just about any other type of offense. Um, but it really varies. I mean, you, you mentioned the Christian Newsom case. Um, I know we had a conflict of interest on those cases, mm. so we didn't have uh, any of those uh, participants. And um, one thing to sort of note is that, uh, you know, for, for a layperson who might not understand what I mean by con conflict of interest, if four people go in and commit a crime together, my office can't represent all four of them mm. because it might be person A's best mm. in their best interest to tell exactly what happened to everybody about person B. Right. Well, if I'm representing person B, how can I go negotiate that, that person A should go and, and basically sort of tell on person B if I'm also representing person B? And so when you have co-defendants like that, um, that means that private counsel will get appointed because I can't represent both party A and party B. But if you've got a representation history with somebody, that can also lead to a conflict um, and that you still have a legal responsibility to protect their interests. and um, and so that's, I, I believe uh, that that's sort of what had happened on the right. Christian Newsom case is that uh, we just were not able to represent any of those parties. But we, we certainly do handle our fair share of, sure. I mean, everything from the lowest level criminal trespass all the way up to, you know, all the way up to first degree murder cases. It yeah. just, you know, it's a case by case basis. Wow. Well, we are, we're almost 27 minutes in, so that's probably a good place for us to stop at this point. And, you know, I'm always happy to have you back, but. Uh, you're going to be on the ballot unopposed uh, May the 3rd Republican primary. So as long as you and your wife vote for you, you should be okay, right? <laughs> well, you know, Brian, if I, if I see the results and there's only one, because I know I'm voting for myself, <laughs> if I only get one vote, my wife and I will have to have a talk, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sure you're going to have more than one vote. but uh, And then also <laughs> you're going to be unopposed August the 4th in the general election. So uh, congratulations on the work you've done for the last couple of years since Governor Lee appointed you, since you won the Republican primary and the general last time. Obviously, folks have recognized that, that you're doing a good job. And so uh, looks like you're going to uh, sail right into a, a, a full eight-year term. Uh, so um, congratulations on that. And, um, you know, we just look forward to uh, you continuing to provide the, the legal uh, service that um, – the citizens that can't afford uh, legal counsel uh, deserve. And any last parting thing you want to say? And again, thanks for being on the Brian Hornback experience. 
No, just thank you very much for having me on, Brian. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye. Bye.